good to be with God's people this morning. Amen? It's good to worship our great God and King together, singing to Him. It's good to open His Word together. I would encourage you, if you haven't um, started our Abide Together this year, that you you join us on this journey through the New Testament, these first six months of the year, and um, our overview of the Old Testament as we continue the rest of the year out. Um, I think it's going to be an encouraging time. I've already seen a lot of people talking about it um, through social media and different things, and it's just it's just great to see God's people in His Word um, and showing a love for His Word and His people and encouraging one another through that. Um, this morning we're gonna we're gonna hit a heavy subject, um, as tends to be the nature of the things I've been preaching for the last year. Um, so if you haven't been here, if this is your first time at Grace this morning, we're so glad that you are here. I'm the associate pastor of ministry here at Grace Bible and have the privilege of serving alongside Brian and and some wonderful elders um, here at Grace Bible. Um, it really is a blessing and a joy. Next month marks my two years here at Grace, and so. Um, it's gone by really quickly, um, and uh, and in some ways it seems like it was forever ago. <laughs> um, so that's funny how time works. But I've been preaching over the last year a series called The Crossing Culture. And so what we've been doing is addressing issues that are facing our culture, that the media is talking about, that people are talking about. Um, from a biblical worldview, we are going to be attacked on every side, and we are being attacked from every side and every worldview on what we believe about everything, from life to marriage um, to race relations, all these things. We are being sold a bill of goods in the media about how we should think about these things. Hollywood is telling us how we should think about these things. The news media is telling us how we should think about these things. There are political pundits and theologians and politicians and people all pouring in their voices to tell us how we should think about things. But we, as faithful believers and Christians, must go to the text of Scripture to see how God would have us think about these things. So if you haven't been here and you're interested in going on our website, you can look up the past sermons that have been preached through on this series. You can actually do a series search for Crossing Culture and see um, we preached on homosexuality and racism and transgender issues and immigration. Um, many different topics we've touched on from a biblical perspective because Christ's church must know how to respond to the culture in a loving, gospel-centered, and biblically-informed way. And so this morning, we're going to look at the issue of life. Um, once a year, in the month of January, the church global, uh, many churches globally, celebrate or observe what is called the Sanctity of Life Month of January, where we emphasize the sanctity of human life. And and there's a Sanctity of Life Sunday coming up um, in two weeks on January 18th. And last year, the sermon was focused on the sanctity of human life. And so this year, I'm going to preach today on the Sanctity of Life as we begin this month and this new year. We first need to say when we come to this issue, um, why, why it's important to talk about this issue. The Sanctity of Life is a big deal. Um, 
many politicians will rise and fall on their view of the sanctity of human life. Are they pro-life? Are they pro-choice? Many of these decisions will affect you and will affect the generations to come on how we view life. And so this is a very important issue and it is a very important issue to God and that's why we have to look at this issue. But before I jump in, I want to put some disclaimers as I've had to on previous sermons. First of all, there's a lot of stuff to cover in, in under this umbrella of a topic of the sanctity of life. And so there are going to be some things that I will sit on and we will really focus on and dwell on for a little bit, but there will be some things that I mention in passing that I'm just not going to be able to hit this morning in the 40 minutes that I have. And so I want to encourage you to be looking on our Facebook page, on our website. I will be posting some more thoughts on some of these issues. I'll be posting blog articles from other people and other faithful men and Christians who have discussed these issues, have researched these issues, and talk about them from a biblical worldview. So don't let this conversation stop here, but continue on your own to study how God would have us think about the sanctity of human life. What's, what normally happens when we talk about the sanctity of life is this becomes an abortion sermon, right? We talk about abortion. Um, and, and first of all, I want to say this morning, if you are in here um, and you have had an abortion or you have been involved in encouraging a woman or paying for someone you know to have an abortion, I'm not here to condemn you and to say you're going to hell for that. I'm here to tell you that God offers the blood of Jesus Christ to cover any of your sins, past, present, and future. And we want you to know that no matter what you've been through in your past, that we are here to love you and to encourage you as you grow in your walk with Christ. If you were here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. Hear me this morning. His blood has been shed. He's waiting for you to trust him. Trust in Christ. But many times this issue just focuses on abortion. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be pro-life in all of life. Many times the rest of life gets neglected. We talk about the womb and the issues at the beginning of life with the unborn baby, but the Bible speaks to the sanctity of human life for the whole life of a human. We don't stop being pro-life after a child is born. We are pro-life from birth to death. And so we're going to talk about a few different issues. We're going to begin with the Imago Dei, the image of God. We're going to move on from there to the womb. And we're going to talk about surrogacy, stem cell research, and abortion. We'll continue on to the in-between. And today, for our purposes this morning, we're just going to touch two major topics, although there are a lot of topics on pro-life that we could touch over the span of someone's life. This morning we're going to focus on murder and capital punishment. And lastly, we're going to talk about the end or the dying process and the new, what is being termed, the right to die. Um, we want to touch on these issues. So that's kind of an outline of where we are going. And we're going to begin this morning where God begins in Scripture in Genesis chapter 1. In order... 
to talk about the sanctity of human life, we must begin where humanity begins. We'll begin reading in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Now, before this, God has created light, earth, the heavens, right? Um, water, the expanse above the earth. He's created animals, sea creatures. And then we come to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now if you're here this morning and you've never been in church or heard this, um, let us. God said let us. What, what Are there plural gods? What does this mean? Um, we serve a God who is triune, three persons, one being... Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when God speaks here about himself in the plural, he is talking about the Trinity, the triune God, the only God. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray together. God, pray this morning as we look at this issue that is not just important to politicians. It's not just important to our nation. It's not just important to the people on this globe, but this issue that is important to you. God, that we would submit ourselves to your teaching, to your word, what you have to say about the sanctity of human life. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight this morning. May your spirit teach us. In Christ's name, amen. So we begin where God begins. God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so God creates man in his own image. This has not been used anywhere else in the creation account. Before creating um, cows, God did not say, let us make cows in our image, after our likeness. When it came to fish in the sea, God did not say, let me create fish in our image. He doesn't say those things. Man is unique and man is special in that man has been created in the very image and likeness of God. Now we could go into a deep, detailed theology of what that actually means to be created in the image of God. I encourage you, go study that. There are lots of opinions and, and lots of things, but namely, it means that we have a soul. We have a soul. We have will. and We have emotions. We have the ability to have fellowship with one another, just like God has fellowship within the Godhead. We are created in the likeness of God that we have a mind, a will, and emotions. So man is unique. 
Man is unique. But man is not unique just in himself. John Piper says it very well he's, when, he, when he talks about this issue. He says, God is absolute and eternal and infinite. Everything else, everybody else is dependent and finite and contingent. God himself, absolute, eternal, and infinite. Everyone else and everything else is totally dependent, finite, and contingent. God himself is the great supreme value Everything else that has any value, listen, has it by connection to God. We do not inherently have value. We have it because we are connected to God, because we are made in His image. We bear His image. The only thing that has value is because it is connected to God in some way. God is supreme in all things. He has all authority, all power, all wisdom, and He is all good to those who wait for Him and to the soul who seeks Him. Lamentations 3.25 And His name as creator and redeemer and ruler of all is Jesus Christ. We only have value in that we are connected to God. Because he made us. Because he has redeemed us. We have value. But the question must be, be asked. At the beginning of this discussion. Why are we created in God's image? Why is it that God created many other things before he created man? And why are we the only things created in his image? I would argue is for his glory and to establish the earth as his kingdom. Before uh, man was created, at, at some point, we can tell from scripture, Satan and some angels fell. Right? Satan wanted to exalt himself above God. He wanted to be God. He rebelled. And the angels, many of them rebelled with him. And they were cast to the earth. That's how we have the serpent in the garden who is there to tempt Eve. Satan has fallen. And he is called in the New Testament the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of this world and its system. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, there was a practice that kings would have images carved of themselves. And they would set these images at the boundaries and the perimeter of their nation. So that when people encountered a statue, they would know this land is owned by this king. I'm stepping into this king's nation. And God, in his great wisdom and power, had sent Satan and cast his angels to the earth and said, okay, you're the ruler of the world system. You're the prince of the power of the air. And then, God creates man. He said, I'm going to make man in my image. And then what does he tell man? Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Oh, and have dominion over. In Genesis 1, God himself has declared war on Satan. A war that he will win. He said, I gave you the earth, but guess what? Now I'm going to fill it with my image, and they're going to have dominion over it. 
And my image is going to spread throughout the world. And the globe is going to worship me, not you. So one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are here to establish Christ's kingdom to defeat Satan once and for all. We are here to show Satan and his demons that God owns this. This is his. This will be established for him, for his name, forever. This is why life is so important. This is why the sanctity of human life is so important. This is why we multiply and we fill the earth. This is why marriage is important because it creates more people in the image of God to fill the earth with his glory that he is due. So we begin there. If you understand why were we created? We are the image of God in this world. We are here to prove to Satan that Christ is not done and he will redeem this place for himself. So we are made in the image, the likeness of God. So where does life begin? Where does life begin? In the womb. In the womb more. Specifically it begins at conception. We can read the words of David. And know that. God formed us. In our mother's womb. Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written. Every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. The creation of every human life is a very personal work of God. We are his workmanship created Christ Jesus. This is not some blanket thing that God just created the first humans and now it's just a cycle that nature has taken over. No, God intricately weaves and makes each person in their mother's womb and before we've lived one of our days he has written in his book every one of them so it begins in the womb so this morning we're going to touch on a few issues um, in regards to the womb something I need to say here um, you may know someone or you may have at one time been a surrogate mother for someone. And if you don't know what surrogacy is, we're about to talk about it. I'll give you a definition. I want you to know that I'm not here to condemn you or say that what you did was wrong. But we do want to look at this issue from a biblical perspective. And so it might disagree with something you've believed or been taught. Um, and, and that's okay. This is not necessarily black and white. Um, but, but there are some issues that we need to talk about that some people just don't think through or think about um, when we talk about this issue. And so if you're a woman in this room who had a very hard time getting pregnant and, and wasn't able to get pregnant, don't hear me beating you up. Um, 
that, that's not my intention here this morning. If you sought out a surrogate and you had a surrogate um, who gave birth to a child for you, that child is created in the image of God. We love that child and we love you. So let, let's just jump in. Surrogacy. Surrogacy is the practice. This comes from an article by the um, Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And this, this quote here, surrogacy is the practice by which a woman called a surrogate mother becomes pregnant and gives birth to a baby in order to give it to someone who cannot or will not bear children of their own. A surrogate mother is a woman who carries and gives birth to the child of another woman who is usually infertile by the way of a prearranged legal contract. So this is kind of the definition, the broad explanation of what surrogacy is. Essentially, if a woman cannot get pregnant for some reason or doesn't want to be pregnant, she can hire um, through a legal process someone who will carry a baby for her. And there are two different types, two main types of surrogacy. One is traditional. Um, the traditional surrogacy happens, the baby's genetically related to the surrogate mother. In other words, the surrogate mother's egg and a donor are used to create a baby. And that, that happens naturally or artificially. Um, the second type is gestational surrogacy. In gestational surrogacy, the pregnancy results from the transfer of an embryo created by in vitro fertilization. In a manner, so the resulting child is genetically unrelated to the surrogate. Gestational surrogate mothers are also referred to as gestational carriers. In other words, the, the second form of surrogacy is the mother's egg and the father's sperm are put together in a test tube um, or a petri dish and then they are implanted in the womb of a surrogate mother. Maybe the woman in the, other, in the marriage wasn't able to, her, her uterus wouldn't hold a baby or um, wouldn't allow it to grow. And so in those cases, um, they would use gestational surrogacy. Um, but almost all Christian bioethicists agree that most forms of surrogacy are theologically and morally problematic. Theologically and morally problematic. Um, one, one of the concerns about uh, surrogacy is the exploitation of women. Um, it pays about twenty-five to $30,000 um, to be a surrogate mother for someone. Um, which, breaking down the hours that a woman is pregnant would amount to about three hours or three dollars an hour. Um, so it's it's high risk, low pay, three dollars an hour. And so because of that, um, you're not going to get wealthy or financially stable women to rent out their womb because it's low pay for very high risk. And so they prey upon low income women who have no other options and they think, well, I can rent out my womb for $30,000 and maybe I can have some food for the next year. And so it leads to the exploitation of women. It leads also to the selling of children. You may not like to think of it in those terms, but essentially that's what it is. You're selling a child in the, in the, the case of traditional surrogacy. The baby is genetically related to the carrier. And so she is giving up her child to another family for money. So it leads to the selling of children. It leads to the violation of the marital covenant. 
How does that lead to the violation of the marital covenant? Well, because we are joined together in the marital covenant, for better, for worse, in sickness, and in health. When a surrogate is used, depending on the man or the woman, one is not bearing the burden alongside their spouse of the inability to have children. And in many cases, it causes emotional trauma to the woman who wasn't able to be pregnant because her husband was able to get someone else pregnant. And so it leads to the violation of the marital covenant. But here um, is the issue when we're talking about the sanctity of life. There is the use of embryo destructive technology. In other words, in vitro fertilization um, or IVF as it will be referred to. On average, only about 25% of embryos that are created by the use of IVF and transferred to the womb develop until birth. So only about 25%. That means 75% of these babies who have been created die. Because of this high failure rate, surrogacy often involves creating more embryos than will be implanted in the womb. So the embryos are usually kept in a state of suspended animation or cryogenically frozen until their death, which usually occurs in less than 10 years. So because there's such a high failure rate, in order to go through this process, they create many more embryos than are really needed. And so they freeze some and they sit for up to 10 years and die in a freezer somewhere. For Christians who believe that human beings are human beings from conception, this creates a moral problem. Several passages in the Bible strongly suggest that human life begins at conception. You can turn with me to Job chapter 31. Job 31, verse 13. If you're there, say, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. Verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Created in the womb, fashioned in the womb, life beginning at conception. Psalm 51, 5, David says that in sin my mother did conceive me. So he had a sin nature at conception. Psalm 139, which we read earlier, he formed us in our mother's womb. The Bible is also clear about the taking of innocent life. Um, in Exodus twenty thirteen, Deuteronomy five seventeen. For these reasons, Christians should not support any reproductive techniques that create embryos that will not be implanted in the womb. Because scripture speaks to the fact that human life is created at conception, we cannot support reproductive techniques that create embryos only to be destroyed. So this leads to another issue that's been in the media in the early 2000s. It was a big deal. You may have seen Michael J. Fox um, on TV promoting this um, research. And it is the use of embryonic stem cells 
and stem cell research, and it was a big political debate in the early 2000s. It kind of waned a little bit, although there are still people who are big proponents of embryonic stem cell research. But as we talk about that, how many of you in this room know what a stem cell is? Okay, so yes, we've got, we've got some know what a stem cell is. Um, I did not. Um, and so I had to research all of this, what it meant. Um, I should probably let one of you nurses get up here um, and tell, tell everyone what stem cells are. Um, so this is a definition coming from the ERLC. In the human body, there are around 200 different cells. Most cells are a particular type, um, such as one that creates earwax. Okay? Um, I could read you the name, but you're not going to remember it, and I can't pronounce it, so whatever. Um, Stem cells differ, though, in that they are relatively undifferentiated and unspecialized. They have not yet obtained a special structure or function. These cells are multipotent, meaning they can give rise to several other differentiated and specialized cells of the body. A specialized, all specialized cells arise originally from stem cells and ultimately form a small number of embryonic stem cells that are embryonic cells that appear during the first few days of development. And so um, these stem cells essentially are used because they can turn into other types of cells or create other types of cells. So adult stem cells have been used in transplants. Um, and it's had a very high success rate um, to help um, a person who is receiving a transplant um, to have, have their body function as it should with this transplant. Adult stem cell research has advanced medicine many ways. They help in transplants. There's hope that eventually it could lead to eradicating many diseases. Okay, um, And this is one of the things that Michael J. Fox was a proponent of because he has Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease, as many of you know. And the thought was, well, we think embryonic stem cells could lead to a cure for Parkinson's. And everybody's main um, view at the time was that embryonic stem cells would be more effective than even adult stem cells. Um, uh, uh, embryonic stem cell research has been extremely controversial, though, for two reasons. Um, embryonic stem cells come from frozen embryos that were not used in in vitro fertilization. So this ties back to the surrogacy debate. Um, those embryos that were created and are sitting in a freezer waiting to die, um, they can harvest uh, embryonic stem cells from those, but in the meantime, it kills and destroys the embryo. So harvesting stem cells from these embryos destroys them. That's the second main issue that people have with um, this. So are, are embryonic stem cells more effective than adult stem cells at disease? That's, that's the question we have to ask because that's the debate that's being had. People are talking about it. They're saying, well, if we can pull stem cells from embryos, they'll be more effective than adult stem cells. And so we want government funding. We want people to stop complaining about them being created in the image of God and the whole pro-life issue and let us use those to eradicate disease. It would make other people's lives better, people who are already living and who have issues that could be fixed by this. So they're just going to die anyway sitting in the freezer, right? Well, actually embryonic stem cells aren't more effective than adult stem cells. In fact, just the opposite is true. Research says there are more than 70 conditions currently being treated with adult stem cells and zero with embryonic stem cells. 
Despite the media hype of the early 2000s, embryonic stem cell research has proven to be useless at treating medical conditions. When tested on animals, embryonic stem cells turned into tumors. As biological engineer James Shirley once explained, figuring out how to use human embryonic stem cells directly by transplantation to patients is tantamount to solving the cancer problem. So no, embryonic stem cells would not be better than adult stem cells. They haven't worked. They've created tumors when they have been used and tested. So can Christians support embryonic stem cell research? The answer is no. No. It destroys human life that is created in the image of God. And it encourages the creation of human life only to be destroyed. Because if embryonic stem cell research was funded by the government and became a big industry, guess what? They're no longer going to be using just the embryos that were created for IVF that didn't get used. They're going to start creating embryos for the sake of harvesting stem cells. So we end up with a society that relies on the destruction of human life for it's furthering health and science and medical endeavors. It's not moral. It's not biblical. It's not okay. The third issue is abortion. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on abortion. Uh, many of you may have, I hope, heard um, preachers and the Bible's um, view of abortion Uh, Many of you can guess what I'm going to say about it from what I've already said about the other things. Um, If you weren't here last year when Brian preached on the sanctity of human life and on abortion, I would encourage you to go to the website and listen to his sermon. There's no need for me to repeat all of that this morning other than to say we believe that life begins at conception. Therefore, we believe abortion is the murder of an unborn child. Well, preacher, what about the issue of rape and um, incest or when the life of the mother is in danger. To that, I would say less than 1% of abortions happen because of those factors. So it's a straw man argument. Less than 1% happen because of rape or the life of the mother being in danger. So we can have that discussion at some other time, like over a cup of coffee or whatever. But as a rule... We do not support abortion and we fight against abortion. Since the Bible holds human life as having special dignity and worth, we have to discuss the sanctity of human life, though, at all stages. We often neglect the issue of life at all stages. We talk about abortion, we talk about the womb, we fight for the unborn while ignoring or not giving thought to other issues concerning life throughout the rest of a person's life. Many of us will give our attention, our time, and our money to Um, pro-life groups and I think that is a wonderful thing we support the Pregnancy Help Center here in Brazoria County and I would encourage you to do the same, get involved there if we're going to be pro-life, we actually need to be pro-life and prove it with the way we live, so if you are pro-life, help these women feel like they have another option other than abortion Love them, care for them, help provide for the child that they will give birth to. Don't just say you're pro-life and then leave them to handle it by themselves. Let's live lives that are pro-life. But what about the people who are in a nursing home? What about those who 
are dying. We, we've got to look at those issues as well. But first, we've got to talk about the in-between. Um, and one of, the, one of the biggest arguments I think that I've heard um, on the in-between of life is murder and capital punishment. Does being pro-life mean we should never kill anyone? Does being pro-life mean we should never kill anyone? If people are, after all, created in the image and the likeness of God... Should anyone ever be killed? Should we be pacifists? Should we say that war destroys human life and therefore we should never go to war? Well, the Old Testament might have a problem with that. And there are many liberals who would make the case, theological and otherwise, that that's a contradiction in the Bible. That Jesus says we should be pro-life and love our neighbor and turn the other cheek and all these things. But in the Old Testament, you have this warmonger of a God who's destroying other nations. Right? So how do those things reconcile? Well, to be pro-life doesn't mean that, no, uh, that we shouldn't kill anyone. Now, we're not saying we just kill everybody, all right? Um, it's, not, it's not what it's saying either. Um, in reference to murder... We shouldn't even have to discuss this. Exodus 20.13, I think, is very clear. Within the Ten Commandments, explicitly states, you shall not murder. Okay. We shall not murder. Now, many of you may have grown up reading the King James Version. It says, you shall not kill, or thou shalt not kill. Right? Um, Kill and murder are two different things. Two very different things. And the Hebrew actually implies murder, which is a premeditated action that takes place It takes root in the heart and a hatred for someone and works itself out in murdering that person. Okay? Um, We we get this from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, You have heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever hates your brother has already committed murder in his heart. And so it's a heart problem. Murder starts in the heart. It begins with hating someone to the point that you carry out a physical act that ends their life. We must distinguish murder from killing. In times of war, killing others may be necessary to protect other innocent human life. Many conservative evangelical Christians, theologians, hold to a view called just war theory. Um, You can go look that up on your own. Read about what just war theory is. I don't have time to go into it. Um, So go look at that. Um, Killing in wartime may be necessary. In the case of self-defense, killing is not condemned because you are protecting an innocent life. Someone is out to murder you. Killing someone in self-defense, the Bible, I don't think, speaks against that. Um, Which leads to the question, what to do with a murderer? If murder is wrong it's been commanded by God that we shall not murder, we shouldn't murder, then then what do we do with a murderer? Is capital punishment biblical? Is capital punishment biblical? If man is created in the image of God, should we destroy a human life? If someone commits murder, should the state put that person to death? The biblical answer seems to say yes. Seems to say yes. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image so God's saying if if someone murders another person they have destroyed the image of God in that person they have killed that person haven't destroyed the image of God the existing soul they have killed someone who is made in the image of God murdered someone and so God says because of that their life should be taken 
Why? He bases it on self. Because man is made in God's image. Whoever sheds, man, uh, sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It's all connected back to God. What we read earlier in the Piper quote, our value comes from connection to God. So the reason God says we should kill a murderer is because whoever he murdered was made in the image of God and it was an attack on God when they killed that person. Some argue that because the command to take life from those who murder is found in the Old Testament, it's not required today. Well, that was Genesis 9, brother. We're living under the New Covenant. It's not the same. However, um, that, that's not the case. This command is given before the law of Moses is given. This is Genesis 9. This is right after the flood. Noah and his family come off the boat, and this is what God says. Multiply, fill the earth. And if somebody kills somebody else, you kill them back. Because they're created in God's image. There are many other issues we can touch on. Um, this in-between of life. Uh, so I'm just going to run through a few real quick. Uh, suicide um, is sinful. We're raising ourselves to the level of God. Taking our own life when we want to. When a commercial commit suicide he or she is not trusting god to do what is best but taking matters into their own hands they're also attacking the image of god in themselves um and maybe you've had a relative that committed suicide we do not believe like um some denominations that suicide is the unpardonable sin if a person committed suicide if they were trusting in christ then we believe that Christ has died for that sin too. Some of us will never be in the position where we contemplate suicide. But there are many around us who struggle with it every day. Because the image of God is in man, Christians should not condone racism or prejudice. We should fight against it. Because all human beings are created in the image of God. We don't condone racism or prejudice. We don't make it the butt of our jokes, but we fight against it. We fight for equality for all human beings. Abuse is abhorrent to God, and therefore the Christian should not abuse and should put an end to the abuse of others. Physical, verbal, abuse is unacceptable, and we should seek to put an end to it. We should seek to put an end to hunger where it exists, we should care for the orphan and the widow. This is what it means to be pro-life in all stages of life. This brings us to the last point, one that is often ignored. What do we do with the end of life? What do we do at the end of life when the dying process begins? What do we do? Um, and, and for that, I want to first address who is in control of life and death? Who is in control of life and death? The power to give life and to take it belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. Though Satan has the power to kill, John 8, 44, 
Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil has the power to kill. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death he will give you the crown of life. So both of these seem to say that the devil has the power to kill. But we know by reading Job and many other passages that Satan is on a leash. And God's in control. Satan only does what he is given permission by God to do. So God is the ultimate arbiter of life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I, am he. This is God speaking. There is no good beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. James 4, 13 through 16, boasting about tomorrow, come now. You who say today or tomorrow he will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you admits it appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. If the Lord wills, you will live. God determines when life begins and when it ends. So what do we do when the dying process begins? This is um, kind of a weird way to put it because many would say right after you're born, you begin the dying process, all right? Um, scientifically, though, uh, the dying process doesn't start till much later. Um, you grow for many years um, into full development and are functioning normally, um, and then the dying process takes hold because of advances in medicine that can be very late in life. Um, now, not as late as Methuselah, but later um, than, say, in the 50s or so. Um, we are to care for the aging members of society. We are to care for the aging members of our society. Society has a moral responsibility to care for its aging members. Christians are to be especially sensitive to the needs of the aged and active in ministries to them. We, as the church, are to care for aging people. Just as we care for the unborn, just as we care for the young, we are to care for the old. James 1 tells us that true and undefiled religion is this, that we take care of the widows and the orphans in their distress. Often we focus on the orphans and we forget the widows. There are many elderly people sitting in nursing homes all around this community whose families never visit them. They've put them in there and forgotten about them. The church should not be that way. We should be actively involved in caring for the elderly and actively involved in ministries to them. Faith in Action um, is an organization here in uh, our county run by Steve Korn here in our congregation. Um, he leads that nonprofit group and they spend weekends with students around our community um, once a quarter or so you do a camp uh, where they go and build ramps for elderly people into their homes. They fix things that need to be fixed in their houses. I would encourage you if you're 
um, convicted by this, to care for the elderly that you would get with Steve or Marty Fontenot or Jacob and Maria Vetter. They're, they're all on the board for faith and action and that you would put this to work and that you would go care for the aging members in our society. The aged deserve kindness and respect. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and with all propriety. They deserve respect. Paul says we should give it to them. God expects it of his people. Leviticus 19.32, you are to rise in the presence of the elderly and honor the old. I am the Lord. That's the only explanation you need. I am the Lord and I said you should. Listen to your father who gave you life. Don't despise your mother when she is old. Proverbs 23, 22. Families, you have an obligation to provide for the aged members in your family. 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone doesn't provide for his own relatives, especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, 8. You... And your family should be caring for the elderly in your family. God expects it of you. And if for some reason the church sees a widow who is not being cared for by her family, our responsibility is not to immediately go care for her. Actually, our responsibility as the church is to go find her family and tell them they should take care of her. Christian life's not easy. Just so you didn't... Didn't think it was. <laughs> but if they don't have family, maybe their family has died before them. Maybe their family has special circumstances. Uh, churches have a special responsibility to care for the age. First um, Timothy five sixteen. If any believing woman has widows, she should help them, and the church should not be burdened. Um, it's talking about a daughter having a mom who's a widow. She should care for her um, so the church should not be burdened so that it can help those who are genuinely widows, those who don't have anyone. The church should be helping them. I want to read a, a story to you this morning, and you may have seen this in the headlines or um, in the news, uh, but this needs to be discussed. Um, that's all we, I have to say really about the elderly um, I can't get any any deeper into that, but they are people made in the image of God. God cares for them, and we should as well. Um, this is becoming a big deal. I think we're going to see it more and more in our nation become legal, um, this debate on the right to die. Our Constitution grants us the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, um, the question is, do we have the right to die? Um, on New Year's Eve last year, uh, after months of suffering from debilitating headaches, I learned that I had a brain cancer. I was 29 years old. I've been married for just over a year. My husband and I were trying for a family. Our lives devolved into hospital stays, doctor consultations, medical research. Nine days after my initial diagnosis, I had a partial craniotomy and a partial resection of my temporal lobe. Both surgeries were an effort to stop the growth of my tumor. 
In April, I learned that not only had my tumor come back, but it was more aggressive. Doctors gave me a prognosis of six months to live. Because my tumor is so large, doctors prescribed full brain radiation. I read about the side effects. The, the hair on my scalp would have been singed off. My scalp would have been left covered with first-degree burns. My quality of life as I knew it would be gone. After months of research, my family and I reached a heartbreaking conclusion. There is no treatment that would save my life, and the recommended treatment would have destroyed the time I had left. I consider passing away in hospice care at my San Francisco Bay Area home. But even with palliative medication, I could develop potentially morphine-resistant pain and suffer personality changes, verbal, cognitive, and motor loss of virtually any kind. Because the rest of my body is young and healthy, I'm likely to physically hang on for a long period um, or a long time, even though cancer is eating my mind. I probably would have suffered in hospice care for weeks or even months. My family would have had to watch that. I didn't want this nightmare scenario for my family, so I started researching death with dignity. It's an end-of-life option for mentally competent, terminally ill patients with a prognosis of six months or less to live. It would enable me to use the medical practice of aid in dying. I could request and receive a prescription from a physician for medication that I could self-ingest to end my dying process if it becomes unbearable. I quickly decided that death with dignity was the best option for me and my family. Quickly decided that death with dignity was the best option. We had to uproot from California to Oregon because Oregon is one of only five states where death with dignity is authorized. Sadly, five states have authorized this. I met the criteria for death with dignity in Oregon, but establishing residency in the state to make use of the law required a monumental number of changes. Had to find new physicians, establish residency in Portland, search for a new home, obtain a new driver's license, change my voter registration, enlist people to take care of our animals, and my husband, Dan, had to take a leave of absence from his job. The vast majority of families do not have the flexibility, resources, and time to make all these changes had the medication for weeks. I'm not suicidal. If I were, I would have consumed that medication long ago. I don't want to die, but I am dying, and I want to die on my own terms. Brittany Maynard, advocate for death with dignity, dies. She said this in her article, I would not tell anyone else that he or she should choose death with dignity. My question is, who has the right to tell me that I don't deserve this choice? That I deserve to suffer for weeks or months in tremendous amounts of physical and emotional pain? Why should anyone have the right to take or make that choice for me? Now that I've had the prescription filled and it's in my possession, I've experienced a tremendous sense of relief. If I decide to change my mind about taking the medication, I will not take it. Having this choice at the end of my life has become incredibly important. It has given me a sense of peace during a tumultuous time that otherwise would be dominated by fear, uncertainty, and pain. Now I'm able to move forward in my remaining days or weeks I have on this beautiful earth to seek joy and love and spend time traveling to outdoor wonders of nature and, those I, and with those I love. I know that I have a safety net. Plan to celebrate my husband's birthday on October 26th with him and our family unless my condition improves dramatically. I will look to pass soon thereafter. I hope for the sake of my fellow American citizens that I'll never meet, uh, that I'll never meet, that this option is available to you. If you ever find yourself walking a mile in my shoes, I hope that you would at least be given the same choice and that no one tries to take it from you. When my suffering becomes too great, I can say to all those I love, I love you, come be by my side, and come say goodbye as I pass into whatever's next. <laughs> At peace when she died. Um, I will die upstairs in my bedroom with my husband, mother, stepfather, best friend by my side and pass peacefully 
can't imagine trying to rob anyone else of that choice. So last month, I believe, Brittany Maynard, 29, took a pill and died. The right to die. Um, you don't have the right to die or determine when that happens. First Peter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Your life is not for you. Your life is not about your choice of when you're going to live and when you're going to die. And you don't decide what quality of life is. God does. He's the arbiter. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He alone holds the power to raise to life and to kill. 1 Peter 4.19 Those who suffer according to God's will should in doing good entrust themselves to a faithful creator. See, Brittany's problem wasn't cancer. Her problem was that she didn't trust her creator to work all things together for good, to love those, or to love him, and are called according to his purpose. She didn't trust God with her life. She wanted to determine when her end would take place. But we are to live for God's will, not our own desires. And thankfully, God has defeated death. See, death isn't natural. Death wasn't part of the system when God created the perfect world that he made. With the fall of humanity and Adam's sin, death entered the scene. But one day God will eradicate death. And he has already defeated it. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. Now when this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with, clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has defeated death. See, so if we're trusting Christ when the dying process begins, I don't have to make a choice except to love him and trust him and to worship him for the time he gives me and to make sure that my family and friends know where I'm going, not to whatever lies next, but into the arms of a God who gave his life for me. Let's pray. God, we thank you that... Um, you have created us in your image, that we bear your image to a world who needs Christ. God, I pray that we would continue to think on these things, that we would see how our view of life affects every facet of life, and God, that we would be a people who fight for lives of unborn babies, of the elderly who are in the hospital. God, for innocent life around the world that's being slain by its um, dictators. God, that we would pray for them, that, we would pr that, that you would protect them. God, so that your glory will be shown to the nations. 
Be with us now as we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.